You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored number 60. So, hope everyone had a refreshing Labor Day holiday, if you did indeed have a holiday. But as we begin our working week, we'll start with a little news from Minnesota. Home healthcare workers in Minnesota just got themselves a union, opening up a new door for negotiating higher wages and career advancement for some 27,000 healthcare workers statewide, making them effectively the largest uh, collective bargaining unit in the state. So they were organized by the Service Employees International Union, which, as you may recall, was the union at the center of the Harris v. Quinn case, which we've reported on extensively. It was a major blow to public sector unions across the country. But this vote was a show of defiance and a sign that even in the wake of uh, these weakened protections for labor rights in public sector jobs like home health care, there is still hope for some good old-fashioned grassroots organizing. They won by a 60% to 40% margin. And uh, with this, they hope that they will bring higher wages and a better contract for workers statewide, many of whom are living on public benefits and simply aren't making enough to get by. They join a slew of organized workforces across the country in this sector, and they are bucking the trend. And so we're going to hear now from Summer Spica. She is one of the home care workers that was working on the campaign. If you recall, we talked to her a couple episodes ago on the eve of the vote, and here she is updating us after the vote. So yeah, we knocked on doors, um, we had rallies at the Capitol, we made phone calls, all kinds of things. In home care, it's a little different than like in a hospital where everybody goes to the same break room. It's, there's a camaraderie. In home care, it's very isolated. So we we had to do those things to be able to reach other home care workers and tell them you know, what we were doing and the changes that we wanted made. We've really had overwhelming support from both home care workers and nurses. You know, everybody wants to see changes in this field. So we've had a really, really strong support. I'm not a union organizer, but I will say that one of the things that really inspired me and has continued to inspire me about this campaign is that it's not about the people that work at SEIU. It's not about the governor. It's not about politicians. It's about home care workers. And we have been able to make the decisions from the get-go the entire way through every obstacle. We as a leadership team of home care workers and recipients have been the one to make those decisions. And I think that really has made a world of difference in our campaign is that it's about us as home care workers and about our recipients and nothing more than that. And that was Summer Spica. She is a home health care aide in Minnesota. She is celebrating her recent union win with the SEIU. And just as a side note, SEIU is also the union that is helping to organize the fast food workers movement. And home health care workers were out in force in solidarity with the fast food workers who went on strike on Thursday, protesting for better wages and working conditions and a right to form their own union. So stay tuned. We'll be covering more about that that movement in the coming weeks and months. From Minnesota to care workers right here in New York City. This week, the universal pre-K program that has been much touted as one of new Mayor Bill de Blasio's efforts to end inequality in New York starts. 
I reported on the rollout and the jobs that will be created, particularly by this program for Truthout this week. And what I found was that a program that is supposed to end inequality is kind of has some inequalities of its own. About 40% of the jobs created by this new program in the city will be in public schools, meaning that the new pre-K teachers will be union members with the United Federation of Teachers. However, quite a few of the teachers who are going to be working in universal pre-K programs funded by the state in community programs will not be necessarily union members. That is an interesting question. In order to make sure that the community-based programs were able to hire teachers, in fact, the mayor de Blasio had to set a wage floor for these community programs, bringing them up to $44,000 a year, which is quite a bit better than the $10 an hour the city's living wage law would mandate that they receive, but still, as many have noted, not exactly a living wage in New York City, particularly with somebody with the education required to actually be an early childhood educator. I also noted in the piece that there was a lot of contentious debate when lobbying for this program was happening about whether early childhood education was really education at all or whether it might just be dedicated babysitting. Here on Belabored, we believe that babysitters deserve a living wage too, but in particular, it's worth noting, as Zakia Ansari did in my piece, that early childhood education, when it is for wealthy white people, is considered high-quality preschool. When it is suddenly low-income people of color lobbying for this program, it is babysitting. We all know here on Belabored that just educating our children hard enough isn't going to be the the magic solution to getting them good jobs, but it is something. It certainly helps parents who need quality child care for their children, and also we should be a little concerned that this supposedly inequality-fighting program does not end up perpetuating inequality among its workers. And speaking of New York and inequality, uh, with all of the inequality roiling on uh, New York City streets these days, clearly on display, you would not think that New York is in fact a union town, but we have a new report from friend of the podcast Ruth Milkman and her colleague Stephanie Luce at City University of New York, and they found that New York remains the most union-dense state in the nation, which basically means that uh, we have a higher rate of unionized workers uh, in our wage and salary workforce than uh, any other state. And in absolute numbers, we're second only to California, which, as you know, has a much bigger population. When you drill down to New York City, it actually shows a small but significant uptick in the number of unionized workers across the workforce. Now, a small caveat to that is this is Coming amid a you know very long multi-year trend of decline in unionization overall, nonetheless, about one in four New York City workers is a member of a union, and that's a hell of a lot higher than the nationwide rate. Public sector unionism is a huge part of it. About 70% of uh, public sector workers are members of unions, but in the private sector, we've actually seen some significant gains, and that accounts for much of the recent uptick, uh, especially in construction uh, as well as trades. 
like um, hotel services, uh, as well as building related, you know, maintenance type trades. This could be just a product of a generalized sort of a job growth because of the economic recovery, so-called recovery, I should say. But since this is a measure of density, uh, which is the proportion of unionized workers, it does signal maybe a promising sign that labor might be on a slight upswing. But definitely stay tuned for more to see if there's more than one data point to this, hopefully, uh, what turns out to be a trend. And you can check out my story at The Nation that looks at these numbers a little more carefully this week. And as always, we will put links to our stories on this and everything else you could possibly want to know about labor in New York, maybe not everything, at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. Back to care workers for a few minutes. The uh, nearly 200 human services workers at LifeLinks in Massachusetts have won their strike. I'm at was a rather short strike, um, just two days, and the bosses were willing to come to the table giving the workers wage increases of 10 to 15 percent over the life of the contract, giving them some additional vacation days each year, and giving them paid holidays and double time for hours worked on holidays because the, the people who provide their frontline nursing, direct care, and social services for people with developmental disabilities often work 24-hour shifts. They work inpatient as well as outpatient. In short, like most care workers, they do a heck of a lot of work, and it's quite hard. In a foreshadowing of our main conversation today, the LifeLinks workers say they were in part inspired by the workers at Market Basket to stick together, go out on strike, and win. And as we mentioned, it took just two days for the bosses to come to the table and give them what they wanted. So congratulations, LifeLinks workers. And as I mentioned, our main conversation for today is the multi-week strike at Market Basket, a chain of grocery stores owned by a family that was having a little a little interfamily drama over the last, uh, well, actually, I think the family drama goes back years. But in recent months, the old CEO had been forced out by his cousin, and the workers were not having it. These are non-union workers, um, rank-and-file workers as well as management, warehouse workers, all of whom basically self-organized and went out on strike until they got their CEO back. Is this a victory for labor? Should we be a little concerned? What is it with the benevolent bosses? To answer all of those questions, we ask Jim Green, a labor historian, former professor at UMass Boston, and the author of, among other books, Death in the Haymarket, which is an excellent history of the Haymarket riots and what happened to the labor movement around them. So can you give us some background into the market basket fight and why workers were so invested in this particular CEO? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a a company that's been in business in the greater Boston, New Hampshire area for a long, long time. And uh, they had a a popular CEO in Arthur T. And um, there had been a long family fight over control over the uh, company. And uh, his cousin, Arthur S. and and brought in some new investors. And so Arthur T.'s cousin and other members of the family took control of the company and um, I think perhaps got some new board members, some new investors. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but there was a sense on the part of the employees that they had lost this very popular CEO who treated them really well and that the new board and the new ownership were going to really 
extract money from the company and that things would change and that it would sort of be like a hostile takeover. And so there was this quite remarkable and in some ways almost unprecedented uh, movement that emerged from uh, the workers and the supervisors and the, and the customers to sort of close the whole operation down until they got their man back and Arthur T. And they did, which is even more remarkable. So there was a lot of, of management involvement in the strikes at, at Market Basket. Um, some people have argued that this is a positive side of this not being a, a union strike, that the management and the rank and file workers could go out together, while others have questioned if management might have been coercive in getting the, the workers who work under them to go out. Um, what do you think about yeah. this? Have you heard anything? I haven't heard any s- stories of coercion. I mean, I imagine there was some... In any situation like this, there's a lot of peer group pressure. Um, you know, I'm, I know a lot of people who shop there. I know people who work there. I had not heard about managers coercing people. You know, I just don't know. But what I do know is that this is, was a remarkable feature of the story. If it had just been the workers, it might not have been quite as effective a work stoppage. And in fact, I think the managers conferred a lot of legitimacy and authority on the shutdown and probably brought even more workers out because these are the real, you know, day-to-day bosses who have ongoing relationships with these workers. And, um, of course, as you know, it's unusual in a labor dispute for anything like this to happen. It's not that it's never happened, but since the NLRB declared um, foreman uh, ineligible for unionism, we haven't seen a joint effort on the part of foremen and frontline workers that uh, approached anything like this. And, you know, they're they're sort of the workplace leaders for better or ill. I mean, I think probably the corporate culture they set up, I mean, what Arthur T. said is to set up a corporate culture where the supervisors got along well with the workers. I mean, they, they can often go in the other direction, you know. Do you think that this is um, reflective of a workplace culture that's maybe peculiar to to Massachusetts? You know, I think there are family-owned firms around the country that try to promote this kind of company culture in which the owners are very much present. Normally, this is not the case in corporate America. Nobody even knows who the owners are maybe in Denmark or Singapore or something. So, But there are small firms like this that may have some kind of culture approximating this. I just don't know. I wouldn't want to say this is the only one. You know? But having said that, it, Market Basket is a very special uh, enterprise in this area, and it, it's cultivated a tremendous loyalty on the part of consumers and customers who are at the lower end of lower to middle end of the of the income scale and who very much appreciate the savings that they get there. Um, you know, I said in some ways on a corporate level, it's what Walmart has tried to produce at a global level. <laughs> um, but they've done it not, not in the same kind of mega corporate way, but in a kind of local way. And they put a face on it, you know, like Sam Walton put a, tried to put a face on on Walmart and was very successful for him and then he died, right? So, but Arthur T is still alive. So, so he, he becomes the face of that sort of customer friendly. We're saving poor people money. We're treating our workers well. Our workers are our customers. Uh, and, um, 
so I, th- I think there's something about the loyalty that's been cultivated in this region. We have this bipolar population here where we have highly transient newcomers, highly educated uh, technical people coming in and out of the universities. And then we have very, very stable blue-collar communities. There are probably people whose great-grandparents shopped uh, at the market basket. So there is that sort of longevity and loyalty that's, you know, I think unusual even in New England. And um, it sort of manifested itself in the, I mean, customers really stopped coming. Right. I mean, it could not have been pulled off. I mean, the the strike action, if it were not for consumers actually withholding their money, you know, quite effectively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it's interesting, though, that the the side of the family that, that owned the place, technically owned the place until they sold, could have brought in replacement workers. And they didn't they didn't even want to try that. You know, I think they realized that would fail. Yeah. It reminds me of a lot of the old, you know, some of the grocery chains in New York that go back a long way. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Eventually, a lot of them did become these sort of large corporate behemoths. Well, you know, you you have to ask yourself what will become of this company and these workers after RDT passes from the scene. But, but you know, they they wanted him back and they, and they got him. And, uh, you know, eventually it's going to, you know, be taken over by someone else and the bottom line will be, you know, evident in what decisions are made. But for now, it's a feel-good victory for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you brought up Walmart because I did kind of keep thinking about this. I've talked to a lot of Walmart workers over the last couple of years since our Walmart strike started. And to some of them who had worked there for a long time, you could hear the sort of you know, I didn't talk to anybody who was old enough to remember Sam Walton, but I talked to some people who remembered Helen Walton. Oh, yeah. And who told me this place has gone downhill since yeah, she yeah, died. Exactly. And, you know, the older yeah. generation will say, people like Liza Featherstone will say that people told them, you know, everything went to hell after Sam Walton died. Yeah. It's it's a familiar narrative in the history of American capitalism. Well, the old the old man was alive. We used to get, you know, a coffee break, and we used to get Christmas gifts, and now you get these new people in. So it, yeah. it's sort of a, in this sense, I don't think it's uh, new under the sun. I mean, I think right. there's been a cycle of these kind of family companies, uh, family-owned companies, winning the loyalty of employees, and and therefore negating the influence of unions right. uh, and then eventually that sort of family capitalism aura uh, fades or, or disappears right. or there's a takeover by the outside forces, you know, yeah. <laughs> market forces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you addressed this a little bit, but um, I wanted to ask why you think particularly that customers were so willing to get involved in this. Um, you know, I was cruising around Facebook the last few days looking at like market basket swap meet pages and all of this. There were tons of save market basket, support market basket pages. It seems yeah. like some of the customers were more enthusiastic than the workers about yeah. boycotting it. <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, this is a this is a an area where there are a lot of uh, in some cases, well-educated people. A lot, of, in some cases, experienced people. Um, there are a lot of causes in this part of Massachusetts. Right. Uh, a lot of movements, a lot of public interest groups, a lot of NGOs, a lot of CBOs, and and some of those folks are uh, market basket customers. Some of those folks are pretty 
capable organizers. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is there wasn't anything to buy. <laughs> to, so, so, you know, there was pretty effective shutdown, and so the customers maybe decided to make a virtue out of a, out of a necessity. I mean, I know, I know they... Uh, yeah. But but they would join the rallies and all this. This is quite remarkable. It it sort of reminds me in a vague way of the progressive era of the early 1900s when the Consumer League and the women's consumer groups were so closely tied to the unions and to worker groups and to crusades for child labor. The consumers are really mobilized in a highly effective way. And, yeah. you know, that disappeared in, in a way, and now it's popped up here. I don't know that anything lasting will come out of this particular struggle, but uh, it did remind me of those old days. Do you think that if this had been a union strike, that the level of support would have been the same? You know, I I think there would have been a lot of support. Yeah, I mean, we've had strikes in this area, like uh, we had a UPS strike in 1997, which was Mm -hmm. tremendously effective. and uh, yeah, I, I, this is still there's still enough of a union culture here and a liberal culture that I think it uh, would have been effective. It's very unlikely that oh that a union would have called a strike around getting a CEO CEO back. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine. This typically doesn't come up as as a collective bargaining or a strike issue, right? I mean, it's a management. In the in the old days, though, I'm, I mean, I'm a really long time ago, the early 1900s, there used to be. Uh, Strikes around retaining popular foremen and yeah. and and getting rid of unpopular foremen. So that was uh, and there's this old saying back from the earliest days of labor movement that the the boss is the best organizer. You know, if you yeah. start treating people really badly, they they might turn against you. In terms of just uh, consumer support, there's also a considerable level of supply chain coordination, it seems, like even their um, suppliers, actually, as you said, yeah. you know, no one was stocking the shelves. I mean, and I, I imagine that was in part because of the management and the people who are doing the procuring day to day were participating, um, you know, to pretty... I guess the word the word went out. There are these, these networks of uh, uh, suppliers and so forth, and they were getting hurt by this, but... They weren't going to supply um, goods, you know, to the owner side of the family either. So they they lent a hand. Um, kind of a remarkable, multifaceted response. One bigger picture thing is that this is whether you sort of look at the spectacular Occupy Wall Street thing or, or whatever. This is a sign of the sort of discontent with a certain kind of corporate bottom line emphasis in American business and a kind of uprising against it. So it's just rare that one is so effective. <laughs> there are usually protests that amount to nothing, you know. But but this one was uh was different. And right. so maybe maybe there'll be more of these, you know, people go, Wow, look at what they did in New England. <laughs> yeah, we just need more RDTs around, I guess. <laughs> well well that, that's that's the he's the wild card in all this because you know, I don't know that any of this would have happened without his sort of popularity. And and so he's got, I don't know his whole history, but I, my guess is that he always, hasn't always been a nice guy and done wonderful <laughs> things, you know. He's probably a really pretty tough businessman. So that's the part of it that's kind of a throwback to another era, right. sort of a Frank Capra movie or something, you know. It's 
well, going back to that, I mean, um, I'm just thinking back to uh, things like early Fordism, right? And and this early uh, era of, of industrial capitalism, when you actually do see factories, you know, trying to foster this paternalistic uh, workplace yeah. culture. And yeah. I know that the market basket situation is more complex because we're in a global economy and there's this whole family dispute involved. But it does, I mean, culturally speaking, it does seem to resonate with an earlier time, as you said, when there was, yeah. at least rhetorically, right, there was this sense of familial loyalty between the worker and this very iconic uh, personality-driven uh, CEO. Yeah, sure. No, Ford, and Ford wasn't a, didn't become a corporate monster overnight. I mean, and, you know, the African-American workers was, oh, let's go to work at Mr. Ford's place, and he paid better wages, and there were classes for immigrants and all that stuff. And there was also, of course, a tremendous coercive element about it in terms of discipline and speed up and anti-unionism and surveillance and spying and all the rest of that stuff. But but there was a genuine appeal to welfare capitalism uh, on the part of workers who, you know, would rather work at Westinghouse than some other place where where the company uh, presented itself as as being friendly to the workforce and providing benefits and doing whatever they could to encourage loyalty. And I think, you know, that's the company, that's the business end of this is that the market, you know, one of the biggest problems employers have is transiency turnover. And my guess is that there's, there was some rationale in RDT's behavior as well, is that if I do this for these people, I'll keep a stable workforce and that's what that's what you want and these foremen my guess a lot of them work their way up from the selling floor right. you know right. so there's 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 connection there between the people the longtime workers and the ones who become foremen and they aren't brought in from kansas you know i don't think but no that that's my guess i don't know for sure Right, right. Um, and, you know, certainly we live in an era of global capitalism where temp work is on the rise and especially in, you know, retail services and, and food services. I mean, there's a, these are some of the highest turnover kinds of jobs there are out there. Yeah, and, and there were part-time workers there, but, but my guess is they, my guess, I don't know for sure, they might have been a more stable group than they are in some other sectors. Possibly, um, or at least more regionally based, you know, like you, you go to the market basket in your neighborhood, that sort of thing. But um, mm -hmm. the, I guess, uh, you know, going back to the history of this kind of welfare capitalism and loyalty to the boss as a kind of corporate culture, what is the history of that vis-a-vis -vis labor policy and industrial relations? You know, you often see yeah. corporations cultivating this kind of loyalty um, in order to keep out unions, right? Ultimately, what what is the fate of of workers? As you said, if it's all about one CEO, then once that CEO is gone, then what are the workers left with? That sort of yeah. Thing. Well, I don't know that they're worrying about that. You know, I mean, there, there was a, a full page ad in the Globe at the beginning of this from the United Food and Commercial Workers, which made this very rational argument. You know, about why the workers at Market Basket needed a union because they could have maybe done something to prevent this from the beginning. The sort of what the corporate directors were doing. They what's going to happen when RDT goes away and the stop and shop has a union and they get grievances and the whole argument. And uh, my guess is it fell on deaf ears. You know, I didn't, it was a rational argument in some people's minds, but it wasn't what they were looking for. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of, one of the things unions have talked about in recent years is the workers voice, giving workers voice. 
And I think at some level, these employees may feel they have some of that. It's really an old fashioned, uh, you can come to me anytime with your complaints, you know, and I'll, <laughs> I'll see you and I'll take care of them. There's that, whether it's based on fact or not, I don't know, but there's this impression that Arthur is, uh, P is, is, is that kind of person. You know, it's not, it's not easy to unionize retail and, uh, it's, uh, kind of remarkable that stop and shop has had such a, a stable union culture for a long time. And I think it has to do with their management preferring the rational way that collective bargaining works and, and making extremely profitable company. It's one of the more profitable companies in New England. In terms of your research on the history of labor relations in, in Massachusetts and New England, do you see any historical examples of welfare capitalism? Not directly because, um, you know, retail on this scale is a kind of new you know, phenomenon since the 60s and 70s. So there's no real labor history of this going back. And our labor history is all in in textiles and machine tools and the port and docks. And so where you're not dealing with uh, retail customers at all, really. So you're really, the the companies are really kind of uh, sealed off from public opinion. I mean, the exception was in the Lawrence strike, you know, where the Strikers made the strike so visible that the public got involved. But uh, a lot of these fights in the industrial sector are kind of opaque to the public. They don't really know what what's going on, you know. So it, it, it's hard to see any precedent quite like this where you could you could mobilize the customers. So. Going back to Market Basket, several of the workers have, of course, been interviewed as saying that they don't need a union, and several commentators have pointed out that this is not necessarily anti knee-jerk anti-unionism or even their affection for the boss, but a troubling but accurate understanding of where the labor movement is right now. Yeah, sure, sure. No, I mean, I think uh, unions are, um, if you ask unorganized workers in any different sector, you know, you'll get varying responses. I mean, in the home health care industry, you get a very different response from the workers about whether they want a union or not. I think in a sector like this, or Walmart, for example, at the corporate level, the companies are very careful to try to pay competitive wages just close enough to the union scale that it isn't really obvious that you need a union to bargain for you. Um, They've been extremely effective at portraying unions as an outside force that wants to take your dues money. There's, you know, what, what they've succeeded with for a long time now is defining dues as taxes. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing all Americans agree on, they don't want to pay any more taxes. So you define mm-hmm. dues as, as, as taxes that are going to someone else. But it isn't as though these workers are uh, ignorant of the, you know, where they stand in the sort of regional labor market. I think they feel they're pretty well situated. And so the arguments that unions make are not very compelling to them. Whereas if you're working in a child care center, a nursing home for $8 an hour, this may be a little more more of an effective uh, argument. Mm -hmm. And that's where SEIU is just in health care and is just... Mm-hmm. reaping, you know, I mean, they're just marching through a lot of these workplaces where workers really um, quite differently feel they, 
need that. They really yeah. need somebody to stand up for them. Yeah. What do you think the unions then can learn from the market basket fight? Well, uh, you know, I, that's not so obvious to me. Um, I don't, you know, I think they made their appeal and it didn't really resonate. I think they already know this, but that there's that there's definitely discontent with sort of shareholder capitalism coming in and disrupting old old relationships, and uh, that there's a potential to generate a lot of public support and consumer support when that happens. But it may not even lead to an NLRB election. <laughs> But rather, you know, I think what SEIU has done is to try to tap popular sentiment in a community that's anti-business, even though it may not directly translate into an NLRB election, which is extremely difficult to win anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so I think maybe, maybe the unions are thinking more about tapping into this worker-consumer, you know, concern about... Um, you know, think you think about these big companies, CVS and Home Depot, and all these places that are really uh, running running our lives. And um, here's a smaller entity where people really stood up, and uh, and there may not be an RDT in these other places. You know, <laughs> probably isn't. I'm sure I can tell you one thing: they're trying to figure all this out right now. <laughs> the yeah. UFCW people and all those all those folks—they're really smart people. But they have a model that was based on, you know, what business was like in this country some time ago and what collective bargaining was like some time ago when the federal government sanctioned it. And so it's, um, I think there's a lot of search for new um, ways of, of mobilizing people. And here the workers mobilize themselves. So you can bet that they're out there seeding this in other places. <laughs> they don't uh, rest uh, I don't know you know, exactly what is going on, but they're studying all this, I'm sure. I noticed that you know there was actually an NLRB complaint filed during the market basket strike because people said that the new management had actually interfered with an employee's right to strike um, and, and created a hostile work environment. And so I guess that offers maybe a little glimpse into, I guess, the level of sophistication that, that some of the employee slash management organizers brought to this. Yeah, you know, yeah. they didn't need no stinking union, but they went to the NLRB <laughs> anyway because they understood their rights. Well, workers, right? Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of talk among people who've been, you know, studying and supporting unions for a long, long time and writing about their history and trying to help with strategy. You know, and, and a lot of people feel a lot of um, so-called labor experts or theorists that there's probably really a need for a new model of workplace a representation that, you know, what worked at Ford Motor Company in 1941 as a sort of model of a certain era and that it's not, it's not working very well. It isn't simply employees' hostility to unions. It's that the model is, is not as effective as it was and they can be so easily frustrated by management. Volkswagen, you know, had this works council idea and so forth and so on. So I think um, that's where a lot of thinkers and planners and strategists are beginning to orient. I mean, why couldn't you have a, a workplace organization that included foremen? Right. You know, well, you yeah. can't if it's an NLRB because it's 
it's prohibited by the NLRB. But if you if you work outside of that legal framework, then you can do a lot of things, which they did, which they did at Market Basket. <laughs> right. Well, I, and I'm sure you know the laws governing the Wagner Act and the NLRB were written very much, you know, with an eye towards constraining what labor could and could not do. Well, yeah. Let's make sure the foremen don't unionize. If they yeah. do, we're in real trouble. And so they put a stop to that. And um, so the so the that whole framework of labor law has really been, you know, highly restrictive of of what workers need to do to fight for representation, and uh, um, it's still it's still effective in certain certain sectors, certainly in the public sector, which operates a little differently. But uh, um, but it but for retail and sales and clerical and a lot of these new expanding sectors there may need to be some other kind of model of workers representing themselves and you know we'll see they're shaking the trees at walmart and i don't know what what will come of that but uh, they're trying new approaches the unions right i mean i think you know some of those things that maybe labor organizers and theorists are wrestling with right now is what what is the value proposition of of unions in general and and other than the principle of join one what do i have to gain Right. Yeah, workers have to risk a lot these days to join, and there has to be a real clear and tangible benefit from doing that. And I think uh, one, you know, another uh, thing that's come up in the whole debate around uh, market basket and and how employees can be empowered in the workplace, maybe outside of the traditional union model. Some of pe- some people have proposed, well, what about uh, worker ownership or uh, you know employee ownership models of some sort? Or cooperatives are also becoming more uh, discussed as a potential workplace model of self ownership. Do you see that as perhaps an alternative, maybe not in Market Basket's case, but as, as a way of seeking outside of the traditional adversarial relationship of you know workers versus management, some kind of model in which you have a cooperative ownership structure? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, you know, food go- co-ops go way back to the 60s and 70s, and they really flourished. And I think some of them still survive in some form or another. There are a lot more cooperative uh, enterprises out there than, than people realize. They, they tend to be uh, small scale. And some of them are just simply that the people own stock in the company. You know, it's not, I think maybe United Airlines, is that, that the case? Maybe United Airlines. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, like people sit around and decide how to run the company. <laughs> they still have a management structure. And this has been going on throughout American history. And uh, there was some highly successful and still existing uh, cooperatives of of farmers, you know, small producers, not wage earners. So it's always been uh, an alternative that people have looked at. It's just just very difficult because of uh, everything runs on credit, you know, and the banks, you know, you you need that. And um, and you know, there's a sort of wild card of management. Well, you don't like the management, but who it's going to come out from the workplace and become the managers. You know, so there's that whole thing about about efficiency. And so it's always been a challenging proposition uh, as a wholesale. Although know, back in the 1880s, the Knights of Labor thought this would be replace monopoly capitalism entirely. They thought it would work really well. And, you know, they gave it a shot, but it, it has been an uphill fight to make it a real a real alternative. But there's a lot of bright people 
experimenting with this sort of thing, and uh, um, maybe they'll get it right. In general, in especially in the service economy, we've seen a lot of exciting actions coming from non-union organizations, whether they are backed by major unions or they're this latest round at, at Market Basket. As a historian, you've written a lot about the period before the NLRB ever existed. Just wanted to ask what, as sort of a closing statement, what are some of the connections and similarities between then and now? Where do you think we are in terms of, I hate to say the future of labor, because that's just a, such a huge open-ended question to ask you, but that's basically what I'm asking. Right, right. Well, um, you know, the old the old paradigm is sort of under stress, and now even the public sector is under attack. So, you know, if um, the Republicans keep exercising veto power over the government and the courts and you know um, it doesn't look good for the future of that collective bargaining model of unionism Uh, which is why I think a lot of people who think about this are trying to look for other alternatives I mean the worker centers that represent immigrants you know the uh, employee associations. Uh, I mean, if you think of the labor movement as broader than the FLCIO and the NEA, then you, you know, you might see quite a bit of uh, probably highly localized activity um, around like the market basket. But my, my reading of American history, uh, labor history, is that people are never quiet for long. You know, Americans have this sense that they um, have certain rights that shouldn't be limited simply to school committee elections and government, you know, every four years to vote, they have this crazy idea that people have some rights when they go to work. And and over the generations, immigrants have picked this up as well. And the the immigrants will really be decisive um, block here in deciding whether some new women and, and immigrants, some sort of new revived kind of labor movement takes shape because in the end you know it's not it's not just about organizing strategy it's about some guys coming in from somewhere and saying well, let's do this but what workers want and and what they're prepared to risk to get it um, and um, with the economy improving slightly you know history shows us that people are willing to take a few more risks so um, if something happens with immigration to make it undocumented workers less vulnerable, I think we could see a lot of activity in the next few years, of a, as like uh, in the case of Market Basket, of an unpredictable nature. That's what Howard Zinn always used to say, you know, be prepared for people to do unpredictable things. And that was Jim Green, labor historian, longtime watcher of Massachusetts labor relations. And we'll have a link to uh, more on Market Basket on our site, as well as Jim Green's own uh, homepage. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our picks for the week of what we wish we had written but did not. So, I 
it's hard for me to say I wish I had written this piece because I wish this piece did not have to be written. Um, I am talking, of course, about Martin Shuloff's piece from August 21st at The Guardian titled James Foley and Fellow Freelancers Exploited by Paired Back Media Outlets. James Foley was the journalist who had been captured in Syria along with a colleague, Stephen Sotloff, and both of them, it now appears, have been executed by ISIS in a, an act, well, it was very much designed to be an act of terrorism, whether or not we want to agree with all of the things that that word evokes in America, that is a very long, complicated conversation. What is not a complicated issue is the labor issues that journalists, especially freelance journalists like Foley, face in the Middle East and elsewhere. Chilov's piece stresses the fact that as the media industry has, you know, kind of crumbled over the last several years, more and more outlets rely on freelancers to do the work in very, very dangerous parts of the world. Um, We referred to this several months ago in another arg, I wish I'd written this, yet I wish I hadn't written this. Any freelancers are working for something like $70 a day. They are not in many cases provided with any insurance for things like kidnapping. And they basically are quite literally risking their lives to bring you the news. Um, I'm a journalist, this hits home for me, I have friends who report in conflict zones regularly, I don't want to see any of them on the cover of the New York Post being executed anytime soon. Um, And this also is important to think about even when we're not talking about reporters going into conflict zones. Reporters put themselves in danger all the time. Reporters got arrested in Ferguson, Missouri, trying to cover protests right here at home. So um, if you are so inclined, I gave some money to the Committee to Protect Journalists this week, and uh, I will put a link to that as well as the, the article at the Descent website. And speaking of various uh, deadly occupational hazards, um, but going back in time to a very Kafka-esque moment in literature, um, my pick for the week is a piece called Kafka and the Nurses, and it appears in Al Jazeera America. It was uh, it went up on Labor Day, and it was uh, written by a former union organizer turned literature teacher named uh, Leonard Nellens. He's at the College of Mount St. Vincent uh, in Riverdale in the Bronx, and uh, he had an interesting reflection on a moment that he had with his literature students. They were nursing students, by and large. It's a very popular major over there, and he was trying to introduce them to Metamorphosis by Kafka, which is, as you may know, um, a novel about, it's kind of a dystopian novel about um, a a man who wakes up one day and he has morphed into a horrific um, human-sized insect. Um, So it's a bit surreal, and it's talking about the misery of his working life and how it has morphed him into this uh, subhuman thing, and it's kind of a critique of uh, sort of, you know, um, the life of, of a of a sad sort of salesman in this uh, in this economy, in the modern economy. And he tries to get his students to care about the plight of this very sad protagonist. And he reaches out to them and he kind of uh, puts in front of them this horrible dilemma where he has turned all of a sudden into monstrous vermin and his work is to blame. And then he asks his students, well, what do you think of this? How would you feel? Um, and 
to his surprise, none of them said anything about the injustice of, uh, you know, your work being so dehumanizing that it literally turns you into something other than human. Um, they remarked on the need for him to work and how sad it was that he absolutely had to go to work and care for his family and provide for his household. It didn't occur to them to be outraged that this man had been deformed literally by the um, ennui and the perversity of the modern workplace. And um, it turned out that, you know, when they stood firm, um, he had a lot of trouble connecting with them on a literary level. And it turned out that he he had an insight from this. He said that work for these students basically is a matter of necessity, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's dignified and honorable to serve uh, in their minds. And, and the dehumanization of sales work was not really at the forefront of their mind. They wanted to be nurses. They wanted to be caregivers. And they, they saw value in that in that labor. And um, he was thinking more along the lines of something like he, he alluded to uh, Norma Ray, right? Another famous uh, character who uh, led the fight at her workplace and stood up to her boss. And, and she... And you realize he tried to give that sort of example to them, and, and it didn't resonate with them at all. And he came to the conclusion that um, that that sense of defiance or individualism is not really maybe so much at the forefront of, of these young people's minds as they prepare to enter the workforce and graduate into a very uncertain economy. And um, this is not really, you know, their fault. And he ended up sort of uh, tying this to the rhetoric surrounding labor today and, and the kinds of messages that young people are being fed about the value of their labor and the value of hard work and how if you don't have a job, you're basically worthless in society. And uh, Paul Ryan rolling out the tired old, you know, culture of poverty trope, um, the idea that you have to be on your own in order to prove yourself to be a self-sufficient human being. And if you don't have that, if you are sad, monstrous vermin like the protagonist in Kafka, uh, then then your life ceases to have meaning. And uh, they, they didn't think about it from a defiant perspective. They thought about it from a more resigned perspective. So it's kind of a sobering piece. Um, but in the end, he came to a resolution that these people really did ultimately see the value of labor and see the dignity in labor, but just in a different way than he did as a former union organizer. So. It's also probably a story about the different way that nursing students see their work than people who work in an office. Yeah, or a factory like normal right? for that. It's, exactly. Yeah. It, and it's it the dilemma very, of care work. very, different. Right. And, and one last uh, point is that what's so interesting about um, the, the anecdotes that he brought forward from Kafka, the one that really did resonate was the role of the sister Greet, who takes care of the protagonist when yeah. everyone else in his family basically abandons him. And, and that's where they see the dignity of humanity shining through in the story. It's not in the lost humanity of the protagonist, who's been wronged by society, right? But it is with the resilience of the sister who selflessly and tirelessly cares for this person no matter what, you know. it's it, Yes, it is unpaid labor, right? It is exploitative, but it's also, a, a, you know, a very dignified undertaking that, that salvages what little humanity these people have left to their name, so. So as a short announcement before we sign off, we would like to invite you all to our first ever belabored live broadcast, or rather a podcast recording, but you will be able to join us in uh, as, as part of the audience for a distinguished panel talking about climate change. Uh, we plan to have it at 61 Local in Brooklyn, um, and we will have a number of uh, guests talking about climate change and what it means for uh, labor, what it means for working people, and how society as a whole can deal with it in an equitable manner. It's on September 17th at 7 p.m. And we hope you can join us and stay for the live Q&A session that we hope to have. Uh, check out the website, uh, Descent Magazine, for more details.
That panel, of course, will be leading up to the People's Climate March here in New York on September 21st, which we will also have more details about at the Descent Magazine website. If you are a market basket worker, if you are a care worker, if you have read Kafka and have some feelings about what it has to say about labor, you can reach out to us, tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And this week, we take you out with the sounds of the Cablevision 99, members of the union that has been organizing at Cablevision here in New York for longer than we want to think about, who are still struggling with their boss to get a fair contract. They have a new song out, and they have put out quite a few of these over the last few years that are wonderful. So we thought we'd play you off with a little bit of music from the Cablevision 99. Just a little bruise, never confused 
there's no excuse for this corporate abuse. Mr. Paul Hilber, you're just a seat filler. A union busting puppet, Dolan's contract killer. You'll never do the right thing. Got Martin's last name, but won't let freedom bring. I'm not a believer, you're a corporate overseer. Hilbert throws the ball and you're a running retriever. Stop, take a breather, you too can be a leader. In Dolan's eyes, you're just another bottom feeder. Ain't no stopping, failure's not an option. I keep the red popping to your doorstep knocking. In solidarity, you gotta give us parity. My eyes is on a prize and the Holy Spirit carries me. Seven hundred days, two years as a slave in a Brooklyn cave. Where's my damn raise? Caught up in a maze. Negotiation games. Supervisors terrorizing with their false claims. It's a damn shame. I got to play this game. I'm going through the pain and all the mental strain. I got to maintain. The devil's taking aim, but my righteous breastplate guards me from the flames. Strike! 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 You wanna keep on protesting? We're gonna keep on agitating. We're gonna keep on standing and locking arms.